And welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. I am your host. And um, look, I I don't usually do a show that's kind of based on a meme that I happen to see, but but I saw one the uh, the other day, and I shared it and uh, added a few of my own comments to it. And it basically said, when you learn about Indian residential schools, border schools, um, uh, boarding boarding schools you are not learning indigenous history. You're not learning native history. You're learning about Christianity. I say you're learning your history. And now, again, I'm talking to Americans here. I'm not talking to my people. But, I mean, I guess I even have to say this to my people. If we're being taught about what we, how we were treated by the United States or its predecessors or Canada, that's not our history. I mean, that's an intersection of histories, perhaps, but that's American history. That's Canadian history. That's what the United States did. So if you're learning about residential schools slash boarding schools, you're learning what you did. You're learning what you did in the name of Christianity, in the name of genocide, or for the purpose of genocide, racism, white supremacy, all of that stuff. That's what you're learning. The fact that we're victims of this genocide doesn't mean that you're teaching our history if you teach about the genocide. I mean, teaching about the Holocaust isn't the same thing as uh, teaching Jewish history. So there's a real disconnect here because, you know, look, we're hearing a lot of conversations um, and, it, and it cuts both ways because on one hand, you've got all these, uh, these people who are decrying critical race theory. Oh, we can't teach anything that's going to make white people feel uncomfortable about their history and about their you know, their great country and, and all of this other stuff. On the other hand, you've got, uh, you, you've got the pro-mascot um, uh, side of that debate, the, that, that losing debate, uh, saying, well, you know, we, we just need to add uh, Native history to the curriculum to justify having uh, these, these Native mascots. And the problem is you don't know our history. And our history is different. I mean, the way it's told is different. We, we teach stories. And, you know, and frankly, your Bible is about stories, but you guys want to claim it to be history. You want to claim it to be something more than what it really is. And, you know, and, you know probably a whole lot of other holy books are the same way. But our culture doesn't cite specific dates and times or even names. A lot of times when we're, we will tell a story and the names that we use in the story are not specific they're, and they're they're timeless. So I say this. Uh, let, me, let me explain. We aren't necessarily we don't we don't die and take our names to the grave with us. So a lot, a lot of times we'll we'll refer to somebody who is known as as you know our, our Mohawk name, our Seneca name, or whatever else. We don't take those names to the grave. So if we tell a story, unless it's a title, you know, like a um, we hear about Handsome Lake all the time, uh, um, uh, and that's not a person's name. Handsome Lake is, wasn't a person's name. Uh, it was a, um, a Seneca title. It's associated with one of the 49 families of the, of the Haudenosaunee, and that's considered what most people will recognize or call a chief. But that's not one person. That was that title was filled many, many times before. 
the person that people refer to as Handsome Lake uh, sat in that title. And it's been filled many times since, you know, that guy died. So when we tell stories, we oftentimes use a, a name that is not necessarily the given name, the name that, you know, was put through in a longhouse ceremony or, or whatever else, or an English name or whatever else. That's just not the way we do. We try to use the, our history, convert it to a story, so it becomes a timeless, teachable um, uh, element of our culture. So it's how we teach the young. And, and it isn't about necessarily bestowing facts upon the next generation. It's about telling the story so when they experience something that is similar to the story that was told or has you know, some sort of parallel track, they will know what the people who came before them, how they dealt with it, right or wrong. So, so much of our culture is about preparing people for knowledge, not necessarily saying, okay, now I'm going to teach you how to be this or I'm going to teach you this. This is what this is. You know, what we say in our culture is this is how it was told to me. Or more specifically, this is how I understood it. Because how somebody tells you something and how you understand something is not necessarily the same thing. So, you know, again, that's not getting off track. I'm just trying to explain the difference between cultures. In the United States, there's this idea of rewriting history and, con and converting history so it always tells a happy story. And it always makes the United States look great. American exceptionalism, all, all of that. And of course, it's not true. You know, some of what is, is taught is simply not true. Some of it uh, lies by omission. And so when we talk about Native people, for instance, we are treated as a period of American history that essentially is associated with the land, right? So we are taught as the first, the, the first period of American history. Why? Because we were the only ones here. We were here before it was even being called America and that kind of thing. Then discovery happens and this era of discovery. And that's, and that's the period that is taught after Indians. And it's almost like our period ended upon discovery and then colonization and then revolutionary war and, and, and the periods are, are taught. I don't know that, that American history is taught the same way with the same um, delineation of, uh, of, of periods. But that's the way it was when I was in, in school. But I'm, I'm surprised to learn that still today, there are kids being taught to understand what is meant by manifest destiny. And of course, again, it's, it's being taught through Eurocentric views and through American views. It's certainly not being taught uh, from, a, from a native perspective. I mean, a few years ago, I think the Gap got in trouble because they were printing these, they were putting out these, like, shirts, and they're, like, black shirts with white letters on them. And they had various phrases they were putting on there, you know, and I don't even remember any of them except for the one. They were printing a shirt and selling it, and it said Manifest Destiny across it. Well, why would that be? Why would you be selling a shirt that says Manifest Destiny? And so we get back to this, this idea, well, what's being taught? You know, I go back a few years ago when Obama was in office, and, and I remember hearing him give a speech where he was praising how important and his, uh, significant 
you know, historically significant, the Homestead Act was. And this was signed during the, the Lincoln administration. It was theft. I mean, the Homestead Act opened up native territories for, for white people to go settle. And so to hear, you know, the first president of the United States, of a person of color, really praise this racist act. And it's not our history. It, it, we, you know, obviously we were impacted by it, but this is what you did. This is what your president did. This is what your country did to native people. That's not the same thing as teaching our history. I mean, what is our relationship to the land? Is that ever taught? No, it's not taught. What, where, what's the significance of the names of our nations? Where does that come from? No, it's, uh, you know, do we have a faith-based religion like Christianity or, or Judaism or, uh, you know, or Islam? Some do, but I mean, to, to teach Indians as a subject, when you're talking about, you know, maybe a thousand distinct cultures across, you know, what, what we call Turtle Island, North America, and, and then more too when you get into South America. You can't teach Indians as a subject. I mean, that, that'd be like, I mean, that'd be like trying to teach European history and you're only going to re refer to, to, you know, English or something like that. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's, you know, I know it's hard to sometimes make the comparisons. But the, but the significance of that meme that I mentioned at the beginning was this idea that, that when we talk about there being absence of teaching any native history, you know, or native culture or any, any of that stuff, most of the time we're taught as a timestamp of a people who met their demise. And all of the other periods of history you know, uh, the immediate periods of history, like discovery and colonization and revolution, this was all about eradicating us. I mean, we're, we're barely even mentioned after that. Well, I mean, we're, not, we're barely mentioned in the, in the colonial period, but certainly not mentioned much in the revolutionary period and certainly nothing after that. I mean, so, you know, my point is, is that we're still here. We were here for every part of your history. Now, it's still your history if you guys are dictating policy and, uh, and you know, waging war all over the world and, and that kind of stuff. But there's very little that talks about our history, uh, especially the history that predates you. But it, it's like the only part of Native culture that's taught is what white people experienced when they got here. So it's a timestamp. This is what Native people believed. Anytime I, I see somebody, you know, say or hear somebody say that or, or read that, you know, Native people believed. How can you say that? I mean, how can a white person write in a book what Native people believed? You know, because even if, even if you're interpreting some of our stories, I mean, look, we, we do this, uh, this thing called the Ohunda Goriwa Dekwa. It's the... It's the words before before all else, and we it's or it's sometimes referred to as the opening. Sometimes it's wrongly referred to as a prayer. And what it is, it's acknowledging all of creation. And and when we do it, we do it in such a way that we talk about every part of creation being related to us. Now you could literally believe that you know that we consider the um, 
the animals, our cousins, like white people or like Europeans refer to their cousins, their, their, their uncles and aunts, kids. No. Or when we refer to the, the moon being our grandmother, you can literally believe that we believed that the moon was the head of our grandmother. But you're missing, you're, you're missing all of the story. You know, and, and again, what you're doing, you're, you know, I don't know if disnifying is a, is a word, but uh, it's like you're taking our culture, trying to take some things literally, and then creating this cartoon, um, mythological uh, version, cartoon, again, cartoon version of who we are. Without even understanding, why do we, why do we use things like, uh, uh, words like cousin or aunt or uncle or older brother, younger, you know, grandfather, grandmother? Why, you know, why do we refer to other parts of creation as our family? I mean, if you don't even understand why we, we have this, um, uh, this relationship with all of creation, well, then you, you missed, you know, a big part of the story. You missed a big part of, of who we are. But if, if you can reduce us to a primitive people who believe these, these, you know, outlandish beliefs, and then, you know, and yet you're going to tell your biblical stories as if they have to be, you know, taken literally, you know, Noah and the ark and rising from the dead and, you know, uh, you know uh, <laughs> turning, you know, uh, you know, a basketful of you know fish and loaf uh, bread into to feed the multitudes. I mean, you can tell all these 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 fantastic stories. Born of a virgin, yeah, that one. Um, all all of these fantastic stories, and and that's supposed to be accepted as, as truth. And even though much of many of those stories, Old Testament, New Testament, are pretty preposterous. I mean. If you were to say that about anybody else other than Jesus Christ or something like that, you would be considered you know, somewhat uh, deranged. So when you try to take our stories literally, even though you take your stories literally, you can dismiss them as, as the, oh, those are just primitive ancient beliefs. No, they aren't. They're, they are ways that we can treat the world as a metaphor for life. Our creation story is a metaphor for, for, for being born, for childbirth. I mean, th these are all of the, this is, there's a sophistication to, uh, to our culture that is totally missed when, when we are dismissed as a primitive people with these primitive beliefs, savage beliefs or, 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 or whatever. But I think it's important to, to think about, to the extent that you may have learned American history and maybe somebody injected um, a, you know, a part of, you know, some mention of us in, in your history, like code talking. Oh, yeah, Native people, uh, um, they, they helped us win the war because they, they, um, they allowed us to use their language for, um, for our radio transmission to, uh, and create, create a code that couldn't be broken by the, by the Japanese. That's how the... You know, we, we bested the Japanese. We did it with the help of our native brothers and sisters. No, that's not the way it was. You were trying to kill our language for, for generations. That's what residential schools was all about. You were trying to kill every part of our culture. Kill the Indian, and we'll save whatever is left of that man afterwards. That's what you were doing until you realized that there was value in militarizing a language that nobody else could understand. 
And the reality about code talkers is that um, the code was more important to the military than, than, the, than the code talkers. And in fact, it, it, it is pretty well established that if a, uh, if, if a native person on the, uh, in the field who was a part of, you know, the, not the code talkers, you know, the headquarters, but, but in the field, if they were at risk of being captured, they, there were orders for their own enlisted soldiers to kill them because it, they, they could not be captured because then the code would be broken. So they would be killed by friendly fire. Not so friendly fire. No, if, if you kill somebody in, on purpose because that's your policy, that's your, your orders, that's not friendly fire. That's, that's immediately realizing that that person is completely you know, dispendable. And in fact, we're not going to let we're not going to let uh, you know somebody who speaks speaks the language you know get uh, get captured by the enemy. I mean that so that's the truth of code talkers. I mean, and the other thing is, it, there wasn't this this massive outpouring. I mean, think about this: all of a sudden, every native person wanted to stand and fight for the United States after after centuries of of being massacred. In ways that you know that that would be war crimes in in any other in any other era, and all of a sudden we what we wanted to wear an American uniform. A lot of those guys got were forced to enlist, get picked up on a misdemeanor or get picked up on a, a trumped up charge, and they say, "Well, you got a choice: you can either enlist or uh, or go to jail." Well, <laughs> and, you know, and and. What happens is we'll twist that story around, and so well, I've heard native people say, "Well, it was our warrior culture." What warrior culture? We weren't a people just steeped in war. I mean, we defended ourselves and we did it fiercely against incredible odds, and we did it enough to survive. I mean, I'm, we're still here having the conversation, but to suggest that we had this war culture. You've got a war culture. The United States has been at war. I, I think in total history, there's it, only been like 23 years in, in American history that the United States wasn't waging war someplace. I mean, we, and we get the warrior culture? I mean, this, this is the myth, right? This is, the way, this is the way you justify referring to us as warriors and savages and, you know, and taking our images and turning it into this, you know, all this warmongering. Name all of your, your weaponry after native, uh, the Apache helicopter, Kiowa helicopter, Tomahawk missiles, you know, all of this stuff. And in fact, in, I, I remember a few years ago, I did a, uh, a, a show because, I don't know, one of these military pundits on the news was referring to um, the collateral damage that happens um, with drone strikes and, and some of this stuff. And, and basically, basically, he made the reference that this is Indian country. If you're there, you're the enemy. I mean, he would, and, and of course, he wasn't referring to us. He was, he was saying, if you're in the Middle East and you're in a place that we're going to target with a drone strike, if you're there, you're the enemy. It doesn't matter if you're a child. It doesn't matter if you're, you're having a wedding or a funeral or whatever else. That's, you know, and, he, and he referred to, and, and this, he, this is you know, a, a common practice, referred to um, the war zone across enemy lines as Indian country. That, I mean, that's how... These things have translated. So I want to talk about a little bit about some of this. Let me go back to the, the manifest destiny thing. You know, another, 
expression for manifest destiny was also, um, and they used to say them kind of in parallel. They used to call it white man's burden. Because this idea of manifest destiny was that white men were destined to take over the world. Europeans were destined to spread their, their uh, you know, spread Christendom, expand, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the Christian nations of the, uh, in fact, they used the church for that. I mean, they used the doctrine of Christian discovery, one of the most racist, you know, uh, doctrines in the, in the history of the world. It, it not only supported, but it promoted slavery, uh, rape, pillaging, blundering, murder, taking, uh, you know, all kinds of possessions, property, land. And this is all done through the church. You know, and, and along the way, you, you, you also try to convert. Once you realize, okay, these, these, they're not quite subhuman. We can still baptize them. And we can get credit for, for saving souls. You know, not lives, but souls. <laughs> I mean, Junipero Serra, this, this great, you know, missionary of, uh, out on the West Coast, uh, from Mexico up through California, the life expectancy for a child in his care was only like five or six years old. But it didn't matter. Because once they were baptized, it didn't matter if they died. Because he could get credit for saving their souls. And so this is, this is it. This is why he was praised. And in fact, he was turn, the Catholic Church turned him into a saint. Made him a saint. I'm talking about lies of omission or just outright lies. See, this is the problem with you know, I always hear, well, the the uh, the victors get to write history. You know, the you know the conquerors write write the history. Well, no, they 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 make it up, and they fabricate, and they and they always, you know, you're not going to teach you know kids that that the United States is the only country in the world who used nuclear weapons to 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 murder civilians. I mean, this is always the, the biggest thing. The, 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 the biggest terrorist threat is that a terrorist is going to have a, um, a nuclear bomb and, 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 and going to use it against civilian populations. Well, that's what the United States did. Hiroshima, Nagasaki. These weren't just military bases. But see, you're not going to teach that. You're going to teach that this was the great war. This was the, best, the greatest generation that fought it. Well... There was some pretty, I mean, if, obviously, if anybody else has ever done, used a nuclear weapon, it would be considered a war crime. But you, you do it, and you get away with it, and then you go forward, and now you become the arbiter of justice. You get to be the, the, the judge on, on what is safe with nuclear weapons and what isn't. It's a crazy world. It's a crazy world. But, it, you know... The way history is taught is this notion of manifest, like, like it had to be. It was the destiny of white man. It was white man's burden to do this. And, and, and you know, of course, they, they had to change some things. You know, you know I, saw, I also saw another post that said something about, you know, if you come to a place, um, you know, from, from another place because you didn't like the place that you left, and then you come to this place, and you try to turn into everything that you didn't like about the other place, then what did you come here for? Why did you just stay where you were? Well, you know, that's pretty much the way Native people, uh, you know, uh, raise that question. Why would Europeans want to come to a place, fall in love with a place, 
and then bring every ill that they ever you know had in Europe, to, you know, to, to, to this land. I mean, it, yeah. And look, I'm not saying, you know, there's anything wrong with uh, with with the diverse cultures that, that peoples from other nations bring, you know, to you know to enlighten the world about different perspectives, that kind of stuff. But you know. I do have to wonder when, when I think about some of the, the refugee crises, um, historically, and I'm not talking about, you know, people who become refugees because of what the capitalist world has done. But I mean, think about the, the influx of uh, people who came you know, from Italy, the, the Italian immigrant story. Think about the, the, the Polish immigrant story. Think about the, you know, all of the, the, the waves of, of people who, came to our lands, <laughs> to where, where we used to live before we were driven off of our land. And there is much more of an embrace about some of those cultures hanging on to their language. I mean, nobody tries to eradicate their language. Well, they, they've got clubs for, you know, for all of these little ethnic, you know, you know ethnic pockets of ethnicities throughout these, these urban environments. But native people would have specific laws passed to wipe out our culture. I mean, it's, it's funny. If you were going to teach kids about genocide, now the, the immediate thing that, that people would, 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 would cite would be the Jewish Holocaust. And, or maybe they would look at Rwanda or some, some modern history. But if you wanted the, the most clear example of genocide, I mean, because genocide has five elements to it, that any one of them represents genocide. And they are killing a people. They are doing um, physical, mental, you know, um, harm on a people with the intent to destroy them. So you kill a people to destroy them, injure them to destroy them, create the conditions where a people would cease to exist prevent births, sterilization, and taking children. That's residential schools. The residential, mentioned it right at the top of the show, the idea of these residential slash boarding schools that the, that the United States and Canada funded and then and funded churches to run them. So you get this really unholy marriage of church and state in, a, in countries that are supposed to have separations of church and state to commit genocide against only one people. We're the only ones this was done to. And, but I, I have to say that because I'm, I'm actually including um, Native Hawaiians uh, in, in, with us on that because they experienced it too. But this wasn't done to, to other populations. I mean, look, I'm not saying there weren't immigrant populations who, were, who weren't persecuted. Yes, they were. Italians are persecuted. I mean, Jews are persecuted in the United States. Let's not, I'm not talking about Nazi Germany here. Poles were, were, uh, were persecuted. I mean, anybody who, you know, Chinese were persecuted. I mean, they, they actually, Chinese is another, China is another country, another people that had specific laws passed to, you know, to control that population within the United States. But for the most part, we're singular in that way. 
Now, of course, we were 100% of the population of, of these continents before white people showed up. And now we're less than 1%. I, I think we're closer to one-tenth of 1%. Now, there is a bigger Haitian population in the United States than native population. I mean, you can look at any group of people that had a, a, a wave of immigration, refugee statuses and all those stuff, and almost all of them outnumber us. I mean, isn't, isn't that absurd? I mean, but we don't teach that. And again, if you do, that's not our history. That's your history. That's what you did. And you did it with church. You did it with state. You did it with military. You did it with money. You did it with greed. You let your, your capitalists, I mean, you even took um, formerly enslaved people, men, offered them stature as buffalo soldiers so they could go kill native people. I mean, this is, this is the twisted truth of history. But again, that's your history. Because you did that. We didn't do that. We are the victims of that stuff. Now, I'm not doing a show about our history. I'm doing a show about your history and what your history, uh, what you've been denied in terms of learning your history. You're just, you're just not being taught. See, you're being told a story that's always about America being good. And again, this is where, you know, the, those folks who, who just really are so against critical race theory, critical race theory is supposed to be, and, and, and it's a legal, something that's taught in law school. It's, it's about understanding and investigating the intersection of racism and law. And, and by law, I don't mean just laws. I mean policies, practices, regulations, that kind of stuff. That's, that's what critical race theory is. We as Native people, we, again, just like I said, boarding schools and residential schools rep represents the clearest example of genocide, especially at the hands of the United States, but even globally. I mean, it's the clearest example of genocide that you could have. This critical race theory, if you look at what Native people have experienced in terms of laws being, being passed to do everything from declaring us U.S. citizens, not asking us, just declaring us citizens, a law being passed, and that's 1924. In fact, the anniversary of that was just two weeks ago. Then there's the Indian Reorganization Act. This is a law that was passed to eliminate Native, uh, um, what you'd call traditional governance. Create, this law did things like redefine what a Native person was because that wasn't clear to white people. Well, who are these people? Are they, are they distinct people? See, in 1934, when they passed the Indian um, Reorganization Act, they said, nope, Native people are subordinate to the laws of the United States. And in fact, a federally recognized tribe is a tribe, band, or nation of Indians subordinate to the laws of the United States. Now, does that mean that all Native people are subordinate to the laws of the United States? No. Because not only did their, their Citizenship Act of 1924 not convert us all to U.S. citizens, because you wouldn't have needed 10 years later to pass the Reorganization Act that, that, re, that redefined us as somehow subordinate to the laws of the United States. And even today, as we are fighting land claim issues, there is 
1934 um, uh, exclusion, which says if you weren't under U.S. jurisdiction in 1934, then you can't uh, you can't try to uh, a, a feed a trust application. You can't try to take land and put it in the name of your your nation. And 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 actually, you we won't hold it in trust for you is basically what the feed a trust system is. So even today, they're acknowledging that in 1934, not all Native people were under U.S. jurisdiction. So so who wasn't? Who wasn't? And. Then they turn that on us. They say, well, you can't prove. We, we need you to prove that you had submitted, that you had been subjugated by 1934 or in 1934. Otherwise, you got nothing coming. So now you got people trying to choose. Well, it, it, the only way I can get land back that I can control is if I can somehow prove that I had given myself over to the... I mean, and of course, there's no way to prove that. I mean, many of the treaties would actually argue, you know, that, that, were, that were pushed upon us. Almost none of them uh, mention anything about being under jurisdiction of the United States. See, these laws get passed. There's another law, you know, called U.S. 232 and 233, where the United States just gave themselves, you know, uh, criminal and civil jurisdiction over Native people. We didn't have any say in it. Then we, we, I've always, I've talked a lot about the gaming law, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, IGRA. They just whipped that out of thin air. Says, oh, we're going to create some regulations that says that uh, Native people, we know they can do gaming because the Supreme Court just told us that. We know they can do gaming. So now we're going to create a bunch of laws that say, well, we're going to tell you how you can do gaming. In order to do gaming, you've got to get in bed with the state. And some of these states, like New York, they're not good bedfellows, folks. <laughs> Oklahoma, California, I mean, and it doesn't matter if it's a red state or a blue state. None of them, they're, they're, the, the amount of racism that exists on both sides of that political spectrum or across that political spectrum. Look, Democrats are still predominantly white people. Look, I know they assume that every black person should be a Democrat, but you know what? If every black person were a Democrat, it would still be a majority white party. And don't even get me started about Republicans. So the system is a system of white supremacy. Because if you can pass laws that impact Native people specifically every couple of years or through the history of your, of your entire nation and, and name us in those laws and everything from, you know... <laughs> The, the Civilization Act. This was, this was what created the funding and the uh, author, uh, you know, authorization for residential schools. I mean, this was back in, like in, in the early 1800s. This were, and they were funding mostly churches to convert Native people out of our paganism, out of our savagery and our primitive nature. And, and ultimately, it would learn, turn into full-fledged over 300 schools across the United States and another 150 or so uh, you know, across Canada whose job it was to kill the Indian and save the man. And, and kill the Indian and save whatever men or women who could survive it. 
And I say this all the time. Some were killed. Well, all were killed some. I know, it sounds like I, I borrowed that from, you know, <laughs> some gave all or whatever else. No. But all, all, of our, all of our people had a part of them killed. That was the purpose. That's what the, the that's what that, you know, strategy is, you know, to kill the Indians and the men. It was to kill part of us. If it killed all of us, well, well, we got half of it. We killed them. And residential schools represented, uh, boarding schools represented the largest period of land loss and autonomy loss. I know I've said it on multiple shows and, I, and I'm, and I'm going to keep saying it. But if you learn about this history, if you learn about this critical race theory, this intersection of racism and law, you're still not learning our history. That's your history. That's the whole point. See, I'm not one of the ones who are, who's complaining that, that you know, white kid, little white kids aren't being taught Native history. I'm not complaining about it. I'm saying you're not being taught American history. You're not being told the truth. You're being taught to pledge allegiance when you're five years old. Learn the Star Spangled Banner by the time you're six. And then you're then you're taught to stand with your hand over your heart and your hat and your you know in your hand and you know at every sporting event, like somehow this has some relevance. You're taught everything that will support patriotism. And it's ironic, you know. Um this show is preempted in New York this week because of the uh January 6th um insurrection uh, hearings that are going on. And I don't know, I'm not listening to this thing all the way through. I've, I'm, I've heard some of it and, and you know, I, I pay attention to some of the headlines and that kind of stuff. But we're still not having a whole lot of conversation, even in the wake of the murders that took place in Buffalo a month ago. Those, that white supremacists who came there to kill black people. We're still not having a conversation about the role that racism played in the, not only with Donald Trump, who is an overt, you know, you know he, he doesn't even try to hide it. I mean, his racism. And of course, he'll claim he's not a racist. Uh, every racist claims they're not a racist. But the role that racism played in storming the Capitol, there weren't a whole lot of people of color there. <laughs> a couple of cops, who, who, you know, who got their ass kicked. And some died. But no, there weren't a whole lot of people of color there. The role that racism not only has played throughout American history. I mean, I, I think I just heard something on the radio today. It said something about uh, the state of Massachusetts passing some sort of resolution um, acknowledging the role that Boston played in um, uh, bringing, uh, bringing slaves in. Part of the, the role that Boston played in the slave trade. And, you know, and, and again, no funding, no, um, no real plan. It, it was just a symbolic thing kind of thing more than anything. So that's what we get. We get, we get this kind of lip service. It's kind of like when Hawaii got the, uh, the joint resolution of Congress, the apology resolution, where they were basically the United States admitted they, they um, uh, launched a coup against the, the, the kingdom of Hawaii and apologized for it. They didn't give it back. <laughs> They didn't do anything to fix it, but they acknowledged, yeah, well, yeah, we did that, yeah, and we're sorry, we're sorry about that. In fact, when the Hawaiians tried to use um, that joint resolution of Congress 
in um, in some legal proceedings associated with with control of land and land title. It, it went to the Supreme, and so the Supreme Court said, no, 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 you can't use a joint resolution of Congress. It has no force of law. That's how they 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 took Hawaii in the first place was through a joint resolution of Congress. The amount of hypocrisy and contradiction that exists in the United States. I mean, to me, I, I watch some of this stuff playing out. You know, not only back. Um, when when Trump launched his his attempt at a coup, and I'm thinking this is you bred this. I mean, one of my complaints about even again, as Buffalo is still reeling from this murder, you know, this this a mass shooting, this serial killer who came to Buffalo from a little white community down near Binghamton to to kill black people. There's, we are still not acknowledging the full spectrum of racism. Racism isn't just about hate and violence. Racism is about power. Having power over people. And look, while I say only white people are racist, and, and I, when I say that, I don't mean that people of color can't be racially biased. Racism is about systemic power. It's about having racism built into the laws. Obviously, Native people have experienced all kinds of racist laws being passed about them to, you know, to take something away from us on every occasion, every treaty. In fact, in our language, the word that we use for treaty is that we give up our land. That's what we called it. it, it our, our word for treaty translated to we give up our land because that's what every one of them was for. And, and again, you want some of your history. There are some people, I just saw somebody today or this week uh, post uh, about finding a document that talked about the land sale that was uh, proposed, you know, in, um, you know, out near Albany in the, uh, the, the Mohawk Valley or some in that area or something. And they said, look, see, look, it was, it was a, um, it was a sale. Yeah, but what you're not understanding is that the bulk of native lands that was lost Haudenosaunee lands, the lands in New York that were lost, they were lost through fraud. Not because of bad trades. Not because of just of bad trees. Well, what happened is, and, and somebody can you know, call me out on this if they, if they want to prove me wrong, but much of the land was leased. So Native people were convinced by white speculators, no, you can still own the land. We're just going to lease it but we're going to lease it for a long time. I don't know how a nine, 99-year lease could be illegal, but that's what happened. And some were 999 years. There were actually 999-year leases that white people, just wordsmith native people, said, no, you still own the land, and we're going to pay you for 900, 999 years. We're going to pay you for you to let us use the land. It's a lease. Or it's a 99 years. It's a, it's a lease. We're going to pay you for almost 100 years. And you're always going to own the land. So all these white people are, are occupying our land. So what happens when they stop paying? We couldn't sue. We couldn't take them to court. We didn't have a standing in the courts. We were nothing but, you know, savages. We couldn't go into a, uh, a court and sue a white person for 
for, for violating or breaching a lease. So you got all these white people on native lands illegally occupying it. So what's the solution? The solution is the New York State or the, mostly the New York State um, would negotiate um, a treaty that we would give up the land that white people are already living on. They, they weren't buying land from us. They were saying, look, they're already there. Um, it would be very problematic to move them. Um, we'll build you something. We'll, we'll give you um, um, a windmill. Um, we'll give you farm tools. We'll give you all of this stuff. Um, I think the, the, the Canadago Treaty, I think it's something like a couple of thousand dollars worth of cloth every year. Somebody in Washington's job is to requisition, is to, is to buy bolts of cloth every freaking year and then give it to the Haudenosaunee, give it to the, the Six Nations. And our people, some people, our people treat it like it's a shroud of Turin. Oh, we got our treaty cloth. We got our treaty cloth. I'm going to make a pillow. I'm going to make something. You know, if every person got a piece of it, because it, it's not that much cloth, we'd each get about, you know, a little swatch about, about yeah, maybe a couple inches big. But no, m most people never see it. I've, I've never seen treaty cloth. <laughs> None's ever come my way. I don't, and I don't want it. You know, somebody, look, maybe if you have mine and, you know, the, the, the treaty cloth that, you know, 50 other people are due, maybe you can make a pillow or, or a dress or something. <laughs> but, I mean, so this is what, this is how we're swindled. The land is already illegally occupied. The treaties didn't transfer unoccupied lands, you know, um, to would-be settlers. No, they already settled in. They had barely been illegally occupying it. That's where most of the, the most of the loss of our lands came from from uh, defaulted uh, leases. That ultimately the state and the federal government would protect the white people who were on it. They weren't going to protect our interest because we are not protected in the U.S. Constitution. That's why we couldn't go into court. And so when they make us, when they declare that we're U.S. citizens, yeah, now we can go to court, but we have to acknowledge that they have the, that they have the power over us to, to even do that. We can't go in there as sovereigns. There's nothing in the, United, in, the, in the Constitution of the United States. There's nothing in U.S. law. There's not a, a judge sitting behind a, a bench who can do anything about sovereignty. His first task, a judge's first task, is to, is to determine if they've got jurisdiction to hear the case. Or, and if the people bringing the case have standing. You've heard a lot of these cases where, where you know, a, a, a case was thrown out because the people bringing the case didn't have standing. They didn't, they didn't have legal standing. And sometimes it's legal standing as, as a U.S. citizen, but sometimes it's, no, as a plaintiff, you, don't, you can't represent the argument that you're, you don't have a standing to represent the interest of that argument. So does the court have jurisdiction and do, does the plaintiff have legal standing? That's, those are usually the first things that a judge has to determine. So if we go into a, a federal court or a state court to resolve a native problem, we're telling them, oh yeah, we're giving you jurisdiction. We're, we're waiving our sovereignty so, so a white man in a black robe can, uh, can make a ruling about us. So no, the courts don't work well for us. I mean, they didn't work at all 
And then when we were finally availed the 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 justice system of the United States, it um, it was anything but. But again, that's your history. See, our history is a history of survival. But you're not taught about that. You're not taught about how 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 did these children survive residential? Why are we still here? I mean, after massacres, after land theft, after starvation, after residential schools, after racism and bigotry and genocide, all of this stuff, how is it we're still here? And you know what? That's only our recent history. That's our modern history. That's our history with with you. But you're not taught that. When you do meet a Native person and you acknowledge that that we're a Native person, usually you're, the, the heads of white people get filled up with, uh, not just uh, non-Native people, get, get filled up with questions. I've literally been to a, 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 spoke at a university and had college kids. And I don't mean just freshmen. I mean the college kids says, well, where do you live? I mean... You mean to tell me you're 20 years old and you don't know where we even live or, or how we get our food? That's, I mean, and look, I wasn't insulting anybody by saying, see, I know everything about your lives. I know the music that you listen to. I know the movies you watch. I know the clothes you wear, where you shop. I know all about your culture and you know nothing about mine. You don't even know if we live in teepees. Or are we food secure? Do we have food sovereignty? It'd be nice if we did, but we don't. You know, one of the things that came out of this murder in Buffalo was the idea that this happened at a tops friendly market. <laughs> oh, ironic. That has been shut down for over a month now because of this. And it's the only grocery store in this, in this, I mean, the next closest grocery store is like five miles away. And these are, are very pedestrian people. A lot of these people don't drive. And so we hear about not just, uh, it's been called the food desert, but, but, but I like the, the, um, the correction to that. I've heard some of the, the, the black leaders on, uh, on these radio programs say, no, it's food apartheid. A desert exists in nature. And it's organic. It happens because of conditions that are that are not imposed. That but they deserts happen. But when you take stuff away from people, that's a man-made problem. When you starve a you know a community of of East Buff the community in Eastern Buffalo, and you put all your resources to all the white communities and give nothing, and then you make it almost impossible to live a quality life in that part, of, in a very specific part of the city? And then you're going to call them ghettos? You're going to label them as these, you know, these terrible places to live, yet it's created by policy. Well, I got news for you. We've had stuff stripped from our people for, for centuries. When I hear about Black communities being under attack 
our communities were under under attack before there were, were black communities, before Tulsa, before Rosewood. But during Rosewood, during Tulsa, 50 miles down the road from Tulsa in, in uh, Osage territory, women primarily were, were being murdered, men and women, I should say, but Osage were being murdered for their oil money by white people. And it was systemic. It wasn't one or two serial killers. It was, the, it was everything from Washington, creating guardianship for, for, for rich Indians, to the general store, to the, to the, you know, the doctor, the dentist, the, the mortician. They were all in, involved in this stuff. But, our, I mean, George Washington, during the Sullivan campaign, said, don't accept any pleas for peace. He said, you need to destroy them. You need to destroy their food, destroy their ability to make food. The Senecas and Cuyugas, but mostly the Senecas, they need to know the terror of their chastisement. That's what that's, that's George Washington's words. He wanted to inflict intergenerational trauma on the Senecas so they would never dare rise up again. The next president, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson said, Oh, no, we need to cultivate love from them. We need to convince them that all of the things that we do are done out of love. He never said you need to love them. He said we need to convince them <laughs> that. He said, offer them credit. You know, Look, don't mark up your products. You, you, all you store keeps, sell at cost. Just enough to, to, just enough to get by. But run every Native person you can into debt. Because when, when they can't handle that debt, they'll lop off that debt with their land. And eventually, we'll have more of their land than they do. And once we have them circumscribed, is what he said, they'll either join us, be like us, or they'll leave. But if they dare lift the hatchet, as we said, if they dare lift the hatchet or the tomahawk, we only need to crush them. And we'll make examples of them. I mean, Thomas Jefferson was every bit as violent and, and actually more ruthless. I mean, he, he, he thought this thing up. Let's kill him with kindness. Let's run him into debt. And that's how we'll screw him in the long run. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. But that's your history. I'm going to talk more about this in future shows. I'm going to, I'm going to cite some of the, the historical um, happenings that came from you. And what you'll deduce out of some of that is what we may or may have, not, may have done to, uh, to survive. Because we're still here. In spite of all of it. I want to thank you for listening. This is Resistance Radio. And I'm John Kane.